The Athletic. I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show sponsored by LiveScore. On the show today, how do you keep a small team in a big league? We're talking to the Athletics Burnley correspondent Andy Jones to find out what lessons we can learn from Sean Dyche. Now, he's not the only manager we can learn from today either, but club is back. It's the Peter Reid autobiography, which really could double up as a salutary warning for Stephen Gerrard. Got a lot in common. Plus, we're chatting to Ryan O'Connell, Sports Interactive's head researcher for the National League South. Find out why on earth he's been cycling to every ground in the division this season. So, let's get started. With me today from The Athletic, Burnley correspondent Andy Jones. Andy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Probably better rested than you <laughs> after the, the last three weeks. That came out of the blue, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, it was it was one of those when I first sort of, sort of the information, I guess, from, from a source. I went back to them and as if it was a joke. <laughs> I just didn't quite believe it. It was one of them. You're like, all right, okay, where's this going? And then very, very quickly realized no this was actually happening and and then it was all systems go and it has been all systems go from that point it's such a strange club Burnley I went up in I think about 2014 2015 I did a one-on-one with Sean Deitch and just to be in the town and see the size of the town and then to go out into the beautiful countryside to their amazing training ground it's all very small they are basically a sort of a second flight size team. They were a well-run second flight size team, punching well above their average. And some of that had been done by Eddie Howe. I think Eddie Howe was quite uh, instrumental in, in building the training ground. But the lion's share had been Sean Dyche. And, and he is a big man, a big character in every sense of the word, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, it, it was Sean Dice, to be honest, who was, he was very much the, at the forefront of the, the training ground renovations. When he came to the club, he, in one of the first meetings he had with the board, he sort of asked where the, where the money had gone from the previous Premier League campaign, which was when they'd come up by the playoffs in, in 2009. There was an idea to make sure that they were going to use Premier League money if they got there in the right way. So obviously when they get promoted in his first full season, there was an emphasis put on maybe not investing in the squad as much as they could have, but instead investing in the infrastructure of the club. That is one of his, well, part of his, his massive legacy that he leaves when when he departed. You know, that they've brought the club up to being of a Premier League standard now. Even the academy itself through the training ground is, is able to be a Category 1 academy so they can attract, you know, more players and or better players, you know, ideally. I thought they were very, very unlucky to get relegated that year, but they hadn't spent a lot of money that really put them in such a great position the following season, didn't it? Can you talk us through some of the, you know, it's one one thing to say, oh, behind the scenes, they've really kicked on. But w- what exactly is it? Is it a sort of increase in staff or in, in quantity or quality of facilities? It's sort of been a mixture of everything, really. It's It's been led by, by Dyson and, and obviously the success on the pitch, because that's allowed Bailey to spend more money in terms of the wage bill has continued to increase. The Premier League TV money makes up the majority of their revenue, so they've used that wisely. I mean, before ALK came in, they were a club that was run very much every year. The accounts came out and it was either a profit or, you know, they would break even. They've done that through player sales. So you look back and 
likes of Michael Keane, Andre Gray going for big money. And then they've been able to replace with sort of lower lower cost players. The selling of the big players has sort of decreased recently. And that's kind of because they got to a point, Burnley, where they didn't need to sell those players to, to fund. Dice has been able to keep them in the league. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a slow process of building, but they've been able to, as I said, gradually increase the wage budgets, uh, transfer fees and spending hasn't. And that's been the problem and why they've sort of found themselves in the situation they have sort of last season when they were looking a little bit questionable about potentially going down. And then this season where, you know, they're, they're very much in the thick of the relegation battle. Now, a lot of people will would use Burnley as a kind of model for their football manager save. You know, that I think the football manager world is divided into different categories, but quite a lot of them reside in the taking a team from nowhere and into the big time. We've talked about what he's done behind the scenes, but on the pitch, Burnley had a very clear identity, didn't they? Yeah, he did, and very much four four two based. Although he did tweak it every now and again, but it was very much in recent years he, he found, and sort of at the start he found that four four two and and felt that that worked best. Gave him the structure and framework that he wanted to work from that defensive base, which then he could build on and and use as a foundation to go and score goals and win ugly games. How many one nils have you watched of Burnley, that for example, or games where they've they've just kept in it and then took their chance and. So yeah, so it's always been that four four two really moved to four five one. The season he finished seventh, sort of had Jeff Hendrick as number ten. I've seen Burnley against Man City. I don't know why they always seem to get sent to this game, but Pep Guardiola hated playing against them, didn't he? Because their ability to constantly win the second ball. Yeah, he did. Less so recently. Burnley fans will tell you that Manchester City away, especially, is the worst game of the season. Because before this season, I think it was four or five consecutive sort of five nil defeats that, that happened. So Pep certainly <laughs> figured things out eventually. But you're right, especially in those home games, there was that one nil where in in the season where Man City win the league and, and Pip Liverpool where Aguero's I think is the goal is like sort of two millimetres over the line or something. And then the season before that I think Burnley get a one one draw. I think Pep described it as like going to the dentist. <laughs> so and I think that was a that's a really good good sort of analogy because it is it's that's what Turf more can be. It's been less so recently. The home form has struggled. They've picked it back up in, in very recent times. But Turf more was that type of place where nobody wanted to go and play because you knew that you were going to be in a battle. You knew you were going to be fought for every second. And as you say, those second balls were going to be 4-4 with the Burnley players' lives. What do you think changed about this season? Was it new ownership or, or bringing in slightly more glamorous players? Did they lose their way a bit? I don't think so. I mean, there's numerous factors, really. Investment being a massive one. I mean, Dice, Sean Dice wanted to evolve the squad and has been sort of crying out for evolving the squad over the last three years, basically. And it's a squad that's grown old together. And it, it felt like this season was that point where it might just have been one step too far, one too many times where they've been asked to go back to the well. They've not sort of changed massively in terms of what they've been doing stylistically, sort of the system and... And the tactics and the idea has, has very much been the usual. The difference being that they've not quite got on the right side of results or and they've saved the, the sort of worst performances for their biggest games against sort of the teams in and around them. So it's difficult because like there has been more investments and you look at the signings they've made, Nathan Collins, Conor Roberts, Max O'Corne, Val Vegost in January, they've all come in and contributed and Aaron Lennon as well, who came back to the club on a free transfer. They've all contributed in, in different ways, but very much that the style of the dice didn't change and, and that was kind of one of the reasons that speaking to people why 
there was a feeling the change was needed because it just was becoming a little bit stale and, and what had worked so well was no longer working and therefore things needed to be tweaked. Okay, so if you're starting a Burnley save on Football Manager, let's. I think the the negatives are are well discussed. It's obviously a huge, huge gap to fill, and there are worries about what might happen after relegation. But let's say we're playing this version. What are the biggest positives about Burnley's squad and infrastructure? So, I mean, there's, there's a core of younger talent that they're beginning to build. Certainly needs improving on, but and needs more of. But you look at Nathan Collins at centre back. Dwight McNeil and Maxwell Corney and Connor Roberts and, and Charlie Taylor as well, who's, who's getting older but sort of coming into his, his prime years. They're sort of a really good base to build on, I think, when, when you look at the squad. I mean, there's difficulties because one of the negatives is the number of players that are out of contract and, and Burnley have got 10 first-team players out of contract this summer. So it's one of those situations where you can look at it as a positive and that there's a chance that you can do a Palace-type rebuild, which they did last last summer, obviously spent a lot more money than Burnley will probably be able to spend themselves. But there is an opportunity to sort of revamp the squad. But you've also got a lot of players who, a lot of teamwork in there, a lot of high-intensity pressure, they'll work together. And it, the, the group, one of the strengths of, of them and why they've not sort of, I guess, folded a little bit like maybe other teams would have given their position at times this season is, you know, that, they're all the best, each other's best mates, basically. And that dressing room, that unity is is what makes them so strong and why they're able to constantly overachieve, I guess. And you said uh, about the youth facilities being the top level, which is important in two ways. One, to attract people and, and two, to make sure that bigger clubs can't easily swipe your talented teenagers. But who are the who are the players coming through that we should be keeping an eye on? So the academy at this stage for Burnley is quite an interesting stage because their sort of ascent from from Category 3 to Category 1 has been so quick. In terms of the playing ability, it's still catching up, I guess, if that makes sense. Now it's about finding and making sure they, they fill each age group with the quality of play that's needed. There are a couple of, of players who you would think might might be the next ones. Lewis Richardson's the, the main one, you would say. They've always had high hopes for him. He's featured a couple of times in, in the first team. Bobby Thomas is another. Uh, Lewis Richardson, the problem for him has been his injuries. Uh, Bobby Thomas is, is one that they, they really like. He surprisingly didn't go out on loan this, this season at any point. I thought in the summer, Kevin Long was recovering from injury, so he sort of had to stay as a fourth-choice centre-back. But in January, I was surprised he didn't move out on loan when, when Kevin Long came back to get some more game time because he went on loan to Barrow, I think, last season and did quite well. They're sort of the main two, but you've got a number of sort of other players who who are maybes, I guess. Dara Costello's currently doing very, very well in the under-23s and scoring regularly. He's a player that is becoming someone to, to look out for, I guess, and he, he made the first-team bench for the first time recently. When ALK came in, the academy was an, an area of emphasis that they felt was very good but could very much be improved on. And that's that's the next step for, for them in terms of that. Going back to real life, do you think they'll make it? Do you think they'll send Everton down? I hope so. I, it, the last three games have certainly given me more confidence, and, and those back-to-back home wins, there was a diff, there was a, a good feel in the crowd, very much with them. The feel in the group, the mood in the group at the moment is very, very good. So they've given themselves a chance, which is the main thing. They've they've got themselves in front of Everton, right? Everton have got a game in hand, but they've now put the scoreboard pressure, if you like, back on Everton. So now they've got to find the points where it was Burnley who were needing to going into games, needing to win to stay in it. Basically, the Watford game on on Saturday is massive. That feels like one they need to win still. And if they do that, you know, Everton will be five points behind by the next time they enter the field. Leeds are also, I think, just about still in it. 
um, with the fixtures they've got coming up. So you also you would go level on points with Leeds, I think, and they've they've got Manchester City later on the Saturday. So that managerial switch looks like currently that it's it's you know it's made the right difference. It's it's whether they can sustain that for the last five games. All right, you can read more on Burnley from Andy on the Athletic, and keep listening for a very cheap way of doing that. But we can find you on Twitter as well, can't we? Yes, it's at adjones underscore jno. Excellent. Thanks so much. No problem. Thanks for having me on. It's more than a score with Live Score, legends of the game. So, what's all this about then? Well, with LiveScore, which I'm certain you've all downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get the latest action stats and analysis from around the world. Because we know with football, it goes beyond scores. It's the stories from the pitch and the stands, players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. And because we've been doing it for so many years, we've made a few memories. So, welcome to Legends of the Game. And today, we celebrate Andre Sigthorsen, the legend of CM3. Now, weirdly, for someone who would win an entire shoe shop full of golden boots, Sigthorsen was only average at shooting, just a 10 for finishing. Couldn't pass either, he was single digits for that. But it's those all-important work rate, teamwork, determination stats that make the difference on this vintage legend of the game. Not to mention the, uh, the small matter of 20s for pace, flair, dribbling and balance. Oh, and he was set with 200 for potential ability. That's the highest level possible. So, you know, with those numbers, you create so many clear-cut chances that even a low conversion rate still means 30-plus goals a season. That was about standard for Andre, at least on CM3. In real life, oh, his career was cut short by a bad knee injury in 2004. He started out with KR Reykjavik and was picked up in 1993 by what must have been an incredible Bayern Munich scouting network. He played for Bayern's reserves but returned to his old club in Iceland in 96 and scored freely for club and country. That earned him a move to SV Salzburg, then untainted by the taurine-based energy juice, where he continued to rack up the goals. He went to Molde in Norway, but that's where it all came to an end. You know, the football genes run strong in the Sigthorsen family. Uh, Andre became the agent to his brother Colbin, who you may recall scoring against England in 2016. His daughter Amanda plays for Iceland too. And if that wasn't enough, he also helps to run his father's bakery business in Norway. So that's nice. That was It's More Than a Score with Live Score Legends of the Game. You can get real time updates and results, match highlights and breaking news from around the football world on the Live Score app. And it's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. Did you read that enormous profile of super recruiter Paul Mitchell on The Athletic this week? No? Is that because you're not a subscriber to The Athletic? Ah, well let me assist you. If you've never subscribed before, you can get a six-month contract for just £6. All you have to do is visit theathletic.com forward slash fmpod right now. Then you'll read the Paul Mitchell profile, and if you're anything like me, you'll immediately start a new save based entirely on first-class scouting and shrewd team building that will inevitably fall apart when you revert to the norm and start signing willing but limited runners like brave Matty Longstaff. So, that's theathletic.com forward slash fmpod for six months of great reading for just six quid. Okay, we are joined now by Ryan O'Connell from Sports Interactive. Ryan, welcome to the show. 
Hi, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Right, what exactly do you do all day? <laughs> so that's a great question. I've got probably one of the uh, best uh, jobs in the world. I'm the head researcher for National League South for Football Manager. So I, I head up the research for, for that division. Outstanding. And well, as soon as I started reading about you and, and what you were doing, it was just like, oh, there's my dream job. That'll work. I I could do that. You visit, like any good head researcher, you visit every club in the division at least once every season. But this season's been a little bit different. Yes, it has. So this season, instead of driving to each of the grounds, I've been cycling to each of the grounds in the National League South uh, as part of a challenge that I've set myself at the beginning of the season. Now, why on earth have you done this? Uh, That's a great question. Um, So I did this for (laughs) for, for two reasons. Uh, The first of which is to do my bit for sustainability, for environmental sustainability in in football. So that was the first one. And the second one was raise money. I'm raising money for Prostate Cancer UK. So those are the two main reasons, really. What was your longest journey? Well, uh, the longest journey I've done so far is to Chippenham, which uh, so I, I live in Crawley uh, in West Sussex. Chippenham was about 120 miles. That's uh, out near near Swindon. Uh, but the longest one I've saved until the last game of the season, which is to Bath City. That's 140 miles. Um, oh it's God. very hilly. Yeah, I, I won't pretend I'm looking forward to it. How do you even do this? Because you can't go on the motorways. Do you have to sort of sit there with uh, with Waze or Apple Maps or something and, and you know, map it all out? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so I spend quite a lot of time planning the uh, planning the route. I use a, an app called Commute, um, which is brilliant for uh, for anyone cycling or, or indeed hiking um, to find uh, to find a route. Now, what I try and do is find the flattest route, even if that uh, adds a few extra miles, because I, I found that hills and, uh, and and me and my bike don't aren't happy bedfellows. <laughs> so so I spend a lot of time finding a route, and um, and, and basically I have the uh, use my phone as a sat nav on my bike. Um, and navigate through some 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 wonderful parts of Britain uh, and some not so wonderful parts to uh, to get to the grounds. <laughs> and it's it's all very well doing it at the business end of the season when the weather's a little bit better. But you must have been in positions where you've just been going through the driving rain, thinking, God, I maybe could have driven this one. Yes, yeah, several times. Um, I mean, two that's that stand out to me were Boxing Day when I cycled to Tunbridge Angels. Now, Tunbridge Angels isn't too far away from me. Uh, it was about 25 miles, but obviously it was on Boxing Day. It was raining, uh, and after cycling there, there's, there's no trains to take you back. So I had to cycle all the way back again, soaking wet. That wasn't too fun. Um, but I'd say Dartford was probably the least fun. Dry, um, but but very, very, very cold. Um, and basically couldn't feel my fingers and toes for a couple of days afterwards. So those two uh, etched in my brain forever. Now, I love this level of football. I first, the first team I ever watched was Chelmsford in the old Beza Homes Premier. But these grounds are not renowned for comfy seats. I mean, there, there must have been a few uh, uncomfortable afternoons for you. Well, yeah, if you think that you've been doing, uh, you know, several hours on, on a bike, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is then sort of stand for several <laughs> hours. But that's that's the way it's been. But look, I've been, I've been really lucky. Some of the some of the clubs have invited me into their boardrooms. You know, they're not the sort of boardrooms you're going to get at the Emirates and, and Old Trafford. Um, but, you know, they've got a comfy old sofa and, and um, some nice little pies, which has been a real, real treat. It's a great level of football where you get to you get to talk to the fans, you get to talk to the the players and the managers often as well. Um, so what you, you lack in, in sort of comfort and facilities, you make up for in, in atmosphere and, you know, it's real football at the end of the day. What, what's the friendliest club that you visited? 
Oh, that's like asking your favourite child. We will have one, but we can't say it. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I find you can. I find it motivates the other ones to improve. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great shout. Well, look, there's several. I mean, most of the clubs have been have been really, really friendly, really accommodating. I'd say St Albans City stand out, as do uh, Hungerford. Um, you know, both of them, you know, did, did loads. Hungerford let me use their changing rooms to shower after the cycle, which is really nice. <laughs> you know, Dorking Wanderers let me uh, let me speak to Mark White, the outspoken manager, which was great fun. I could go on; it'd be unfair to uh, miss some out, but they've all been they've all been really, really accommodating and super supportive. All right, let's talk about the life of a researcher because it might surprise people to know this. I, I was a football journalist for a very long time, and there isn't very much about the job I miss. I absolutely love doing it but I, I don't really miss too much of it. The one thing I really miss is the research, which invariably just meant me and my laptop and my Y Scout membership and just sitting in a greasy spoon all morning watching game after game and making notes. And is that pretty much the job here? It's not too dissimilar, actually. So obviously, you know, football managers got tons of attributes. I actually don't know how many attributes we, we look at for each uh, individual player. Of course, it's not just the players. It's researching the researching the clubs, everything from the financial details to kit, stadium information, records, all of that sort of stuff. So there are days where you just, with your laptop, with your your football guides, where you're just going through and you're just inputting data. Now, I quite like that. There's something that I quite like about sort of ticking things off. Yeah. Then you've got the more subjective side, and that's where you're watching the games. That's where you're trying to evaluate the players. So who's the fastest player in the squad? Who's the fastest? Or who's the best at heading? Who's the best tackler? And then, obviously, in my role as as head researcher, I'm not looking at this for one club. I'm looking at this across the division. So I've got to make sure we've got a few assistant researchers who look after specific clubs, but I certainly don't have an assistant researcher for every club. We're always on the lookout for more assistant researchers, of course. But I've got to make sure that each club is fair, that it's balanced, that it compares well against the National League North, um, that it's you know compares well against the uh, National League Premier and all the feeder divisions. So there's a lot of checks and balances, and a lot of reviewing the data and and, and checking that it, it's fair, and that we haven't got somebody in who's ends up being a superstar, or we haven't got somebody in who's too far below the uh, the standard of the National League South, which is quite a decent standard. It's a lot of pressure though, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're speaking to the man who wrote the Sam Klukas should play for England column. And so I, you can watch football all day long and you can still be very, very wrong about things. It must be a certain amount of pressure, particularly when there's a really strong chance you're actually going to meet these people uh, of whom you are rating. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And, and I'm still, you know, I remember very well meeting um, uh, Callum Wilmoth, the Hungerford Town uh, central midfielder who berated me for about 10 minutes about some of his stats. Um, uh, in, in fairness, they weren't stats that we'd actually put in. They were where they were blank. The game had just, uh, uh, you know, the game will, will kind of, sort of fill in the missing details. And then there is a bit where you're like, look, you know, you're a great player. You're far better than I'll ever be. You are playing National League South, so there's a limit to how high you're going to get. You're not going to have 18s, 19s and 20s. But yeah, the, the pressure is real. And, you know, at, at this level, we'll look at all levels of football. But I'd say especially at this level, the fans are really, really passionate about the teams that they go and watch. So it is really important that we get it right. Now, you're saying that the, you're always on the hunt for assistant researchers. If there are people listening who, you know, are, are as excited about this as I am right now. I'm already thinking about a career change. Um, what, what do they do? How do they get in touch? 
Well, there's lots of ways. I mean, the the best way to to, to do it is to go onto the uh, sports interactive forums, going into the uh, into the data room, uh, the research room, and and simply make yourself known there. Um, that's that's usually the best way. But you can contact anybody at Sports Interactive. You can contact me if you're passionate about a club. If you go and watch them regularly, and of course you've got to be passionate about Football Manager, then you know we're, we're definitely interested to to hear from you and and you know to give you a chance to. Uh, take up research in one of these wonderful clubs in our division. And should stress this is voluntary, isn't it? We're, I, I don't want a wave of resignations across the country as people uh, <laughs> pile in. Yeah, that, that's right. It's voluntary, but but you do get your name in the credits and, you're, of course, you get a free game. And, and I'll, say, I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've put this, uh, this kind of sort of side gig, as it is for me, on my CV for years now. And it, it definitely helps you get other jobs because people are just interested in the fact that you do research for, for football managers. So even though my real job is, is very separate from this, it's definitely opened a few doors for me. Worth pointing out as well, I think the former Plymouth researcher um, is now working at Plymouth and uh, no less an authority than Jonathan Wilson was once the uh, Sunderland researcher, I believe. Yeah, that's right. In fact, there's there's quite a few other stories of people who started off as researchers and gone on to get, it, it, like you say, real jobs as, as analysts and things like that, analysts and scouts uh, within the real world of football. So it, it's definitely a stepping stone and, and um, it's really enjoyable for those of us like yourself who, who are football geeks. It's a great pastime, but it can lead to, to opportunities as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Ryan O'Connell, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Ah, welcome back to my favourite part of the show, the Football Manager Book Club. And today, it's one of my favourite people in football. It's Peter f***ing Reed. Peter f***ing Reed is a sort of salutary warning to all great footballers of the speed with which perceptions can change. And I have a developing theory that he might also be a sort of proto-Steven Gerrard. Stick with me. Stick with me on this. So Peter Reed was the engine room of the greatest Everton team of all time. He won the PFA Player of the Year gong in 1985, and World Soccer magazine had him fourth behind Diego Maradona in their annual awards. His glittering career would have glittered all the more were it not for a series of injuries, one of which could have snuffed him out before he even joined Everton. He went on to manage Sleeping Giants Manchester City, finishing above Manchester United in 1991 and 1992, before being bafflingly sacked by Peter Swales just four games into the 93-94 season. He took over a struggling second-flight Sunderland in 95, saved them from the drop, got promoted to the Premier League, got relegated from the Premier League, missed out on an instant return to the Premier League in the world's most anxiety-inducing playoff final, and then sealed the deal the year after. Peter Reid had Sunderland challenging for European football for two years, and it was around about this time that he was being spoken of as a future England manager. And then it all goes wrong. Too much money spent on too little quality. Sunderland slide hard down the table and Reid is sacked in 2002 after eight years in charge. And then we find a string of Rafa Benitez-level terrible career choices. He goes to Leeds when they're about to vanish in a puff of IOU notes. He goes to Coventry, one of the few clubs in even more trouble. He vanishes off the radar with the Thai national team. And then he returns with Plymouth who are, yeah, you've guessed it, in serious financial trouble. There really is no coming back from a string of jobs like that. 
Now, his demise could simply be the result of those bad choices, or it could also be down to my other developing theory that most football managers can really only have about 10 years at the top anyway, because unless they successfully move with the times, their methods won't work with younger players. Either way, his slide out of relevance robs us of the benefit of his experience and his engaging character. So why is this book worth a read? Well, partly because it's a warning of how quickly and harshly perceptions can change, partly because it's so brilliantly co-written by Tony Barrett, the former Times reporter, partly for a joke about snails that made me spit my tea out, and partly because it reminds us of how good a football manager Howard Kendall was, and then mostly because it's oh, it's just a gloriously unashamed celebration of old football, of simple values, and just getting stuck in. Uh, try this quote for size. The players who worked with Howard Kendall and his coaches knew how special they were, even if the rest of the football world would rather blow smoke up the arses of managers who spend hundreds of millions creating a team that gets everyone behind the ball and then expect to be hailed as master tacticians. Hmm. Who could he be talking about? Cheer Up Peter Reed is out on Trinity Mirror Sport Media. Uh, it's just $1.99 on Kindle or Amazon Books. Uh, but as always, we'd recommend going to your local bookshop because bookshops are wonderful places and, uh, and we all need to help them. It's time for your letters. Uh, you can always get in touch with us, imacintosh at theathletic.com or on Twitter, Ian underscore games. Producer Steve, hello. Hello, how are you? I am very, very well, thank you. A little disappointed at my decision-making process because last night I thought, shall I watch Man City Real Madrid or, or shall I finish my Jean Le Carre novel? And... Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a great book. It is a great book, and I'm trying not to regret my decision. Oh man, yeah, they it was it was a game, great game, too fair. And City should be absolutely kicking themselves. Well, yeah, it, uh, there you go. Uh, we've all been there on Football Manager. Mm. Bit of chance conversion in training, I think. Yeah. That's what Pep should be doing. Definitely. I I, I just say uh, we've all been there. It, it's been many years since I was in the Champions League semi-final. So, <laughs> so not so much. Very difficult to take a team from outside of the elite these days and, and bring them up, which uh, I believe is the subject of our first letter. Absolutely. And Jacob McMaster has been in touch. Hello again, Jacob. So he says, I've written a few times recently regarding my Kaiserslautern's team and following your advice in terms of downplaying expectations and overpraising the team whenever they do something remotely average, he's managed to establish Kaiserslautern as a good Bundesliga team. So thanks very much for the help there. You're most welcome, Jacob. So he managed to finish fifth in first season after losing the first three games. So after not a great start, qualified for the Europa League. That's good. And then in the summer, grabbed a few young players and looked on course to finish in the top four, if not second. So, so far, it's been a great sort of second season. The problem that Jacob is now facing, as you alluded to, Ian, is he can't seem to topple the super elite clubs. So Bayern in particular, obviously, they just got their 10th consecutive Bundesliga title in real life. And as Jacob says, they are another beast entirely. In the games, they demolish us and we don't even get a sniff. Our usual counter-attacking hits brick walls all over the place. Can't even string passes together and... His defence gets exposed for the pieces of tissue paper that they are when coming up against Bayern. You can't foul them off the part. You can't get stuck in because they all become a weird combination of the love child between Janino and James Ward-Prowse. 
with dead balls. They all just seem to have zero flaws. So what he wants to know is, are there any tips on how to get at them? Also, got to say, I'm absolutely loving the show and can't wait for the next episode. You guys fully deserve the award you picked up. It's absolutely my favourite podcast at the moment. So right at the end of the letter, but he's paid the entrance fee. Excellent. So first things first, this is a problem with which I'm very familiar. In last year's game, I was Marseille and just spent three or four seasons just bouncing off PSG, who could drop 250 million a year on superstar players. It is incredibly frustrating not to be able to reel them in like that. It's been a little different with Newcastle, where I just beat Manchester City 5-1, though that was largely because of a red card. But I think that's that's pretty much it. Until you can close the gap, you've just got to look for any kind of, of weaknesses. One bonus you can get is that they'll invariably be in European football. And the AI still seems to prefer playing tired players above fresh, inferior players. One thing I have found that's worked in the past is playing the first half quite defensively and uh, just hoping to sort of drain the batteries of the, the superpower and then go back to your normal formation in the second half. Doesn't always work, but but it can be worth a go. You can also look to rotate your players accordingly. Just keep a really good eye on the fixtures. If you've got a weaker team to play against before the, the better team, make sure you find some way of using your reserve squads to keep your fringe players fresh so you've got more chance of being able to play a weakened team and, and actually not losing games. Because that's the other problem. You could beat the big teams and still screw up all the other games. But in this, it's it's one of those things that is kind of annoying, but entirely reflective of modern football. There is a superstrata of rich clubs who can circumnavigate the obstacles that everyone else finds. And in the real world, as they rapidly try to increase the number of substitutes, it's it's only going to get worse. But that's, that's one of the reasons why Football Manager is so nice, like a little cocoon away from that. But all the best... Jacob, I really hope it works. And um, as I say, just take every possible advantage you can. I think also if, um, if you're looking for challenge, Jacob, Serie A, I've certainly noticed because Zebra, as they're known on the game, are in transition at the moment. The sort of one behemoth in the Italian league is sort of not completely dominant at the moment. And, so, and then Inter and AC aren't necessarily that dominant either. So if you're looking for a place where you might get the chance to get all the way to the top, then maybe a little journey to Serie A might be for you. Is it behemoth? I've been saying behemoth for, well, I'd say 44 years. I wasn't saying it much as a kid. Um, <laughs> I've been getting that word wrong. I feel like I've got the pronunciation from watching Robot Wars, the original version. Yeah, I mean, that, that's where most people learn these, um, these, these <laughs> classical words. In these circumstances, it's always me who's wrong. I was the one who was saying hyperbole when he meant hyperbole and yeah. epitome when he meant ep- uh, epitome. This is, um, <laughs> this is the curse of anyone who goes to comprehensive school but reads a lot of books. Like You never get taught the pronunciations. And Wow, 44 years old. Bayamoff. Bayamoff, yeah. Man, I've been screwing that up for ages. <laughs> um, Nicholas Mikalev isn't screwing anything up, though. See? Man, local radio. Somewhere out there, there's a local radio station waiting for me to join up. He says he pays the entrance fee. Firstly, as a player for past 20-odd years, can't begin to explain how eager I am to listen to the Football Manager show. Huge fan, keep up the good work. God bless you. Inspired by the show, decided to take on the Derby County Challenge. Remember that? <sighs> God, how many people got to season two on that? Not too many, I think. He went with a strikerless formation, 4-2-4-0, two wingers and a shadow striker, trying to keep hold of the ball for as long as possible and sneak goals. It worked out much better than expected, with Ravel Morrison soon becoming a hero. How did you do that? (laughs) 
Lots of Curtis Davis goals from set pieces. Great performances from Max Bird and uh, and Sibley and Knight and Buchanan, all great players. And he survived the first season. Then started copying Lelujo's tactics, went for a 4-4-2 diamond with players like Adam Ida and Biref from Arsenal. I'm not familiar with him, but they ended the season with 32 league goals between them. And uh, up they went to the Premier League. Uh, absolutely outstanding. Uh, he's another player who's signed Dane Scarlett from Tottenham. Uh, that seemed to be a very popular move for anyone who actually did survive. And then, uh, yeah, in, into the Premier League he goes. He's decided to go for it using all the money provided by the board for transfers and wages and a bid to give himself the best chance of survival while also being responsible for making sure signings are young and promising enough to command a fee should we go down. Some clever thinking there. And uh, he says, thanks for the inspiration to try this challenge. An absolute binge playing save. Uh, best regards and keep up the great work. Uh, Nick, I mean, you keep up the great work. I don't think many people did the community challenge this year and got Derby to the Premier League. I think it might have been <laughs> down around 10%. I think it broke the spirit of most people, didn't it? Uh, how far did you get? Uh, I stopped. <laughs> just like, I just lost so many games and... They just didn't sack me. The whole, you know, we spoke about the orange dot thing a few episodes ago. Yeah. That was Curtis Davies and Richard Stearman for me. And it's like, well, I don't have any other centre-backs. What else am I supposed to do? I just, I think about midway through first season, I just stopped because they hadn't sacked me, kept losing. And I was like, well, who, who's benefiting from any of this? And I was just, I was, har- I was, I was hankering for Florence, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's got to feel right, hasn't it? Yeah. This is the the only issue I have. I, people write in and they say, oh, I started this save when the game came out and I'm now 40 seasons in. I oh, think, God, that's amazing. I wish I had the self-control to do that. Um, but I, yeah, I, I did the first season and I kept Derby up. And then in the second season, I just started rowing with my board and getting upset and wanting to quit. <laughs> um, so I did because life is short. Who else have we got here in the letters box? Josh Milton. I think he's going to be our final one for today. Josh says, hi, Ian and producer Steve. Hello, Josh. Love the show. And I finally have a niche enough question to write in and ask you. First of all, thanks very much, Josh. You have paid the toll. Josh's question is, he's finally having a bit of success on his current FN22 save leaping from Chelmsford to Cambridge United, high-flying Cambridge United, of course, in real life, under Mark Bonner, where I've just been promoted and set up a tense final day showdown for the title. So his Achilles heel all season has been struggling to break teams down in the final 10 to 15 minutes. Regardless of that, he's broken the club record for total goals in this season, but those goals very rarely came in that sort of crunch time he's talking about. Josh has tried many things over the season, like throwing the kitchen sink at teams or even dropping deeper, hoping to catch them on the break. Nothing seemed to work. Despite this, all was going well enough until our rivals for the title, Colchester United, took the lead in their match, bear in mind the final game of the season, and made them in pole position. I tried one last time, but with no luck, and all it seems is lost. Fortunately, and I'm sure Ian will enjoy this, Colchester bottled it in the last minute, Yay. handing the title back to us. So Cambridge United got promoted in this save. But there's still the issue that Josh has in terms of crunch time. So what can I do to try and master some of that Fergie time magic, Ian? What do we think? So one of the biggest problems on this game for managers who've excelled with the Gegenpress uh, is that the penalties for tired players are really 
really punishing this time. When they start red-hearting, they drop off in effectiveness so quickly. This kind of problem is, is not unusual. Now, obviously, lots of tactical substitutions can help you out in keeping players fresh. I find the most effective place to substitute is in the centre of midfield because that tends to be where the game's won and lost. You can usually rely on the striker to get off a decent finish even if they're blowing out their bottom but you need the <laughs> midfielders there to make it. If it isn't fitness that's an issue, up the tempo. It's always a bit risky because you up the tempo and there's more chances of passes going astray but if you're playing against a tired team that's dropping back, you're going to need to do something to seize the initiative. When it comes to the sort of last five, six minutes, if you've got teams who really have just dropped back and are holding out, there should be no reason why you should be playing with a defensive midfielder. You can take, hopefully, take that defensive midfielder and stick him up as an attacking midfielder. I would say if you're playing more possession-based football, trying to pass it into the box, then having an attacking midfielder as your new man would work. But if you're playing more direct, yeah, have you got a big bloke you can stick up? Remember Mourinho in the uh, early Chelsea days sticking Robert Hoof on as an emergency centre forward <laughs> just to try and win stuff. It might also be worth looking at an emergency rack of set pieces. Mm. I mean, I generally have three tactics, one for trying to hang on to the game and one for trying to chase the game to complement my standard tactics. Maybe have a look at your chasing the game tactic and look at your set pieces. Could you get everyone up front? maybe even get the goalkeeper up front, maybe just have one man back on the half line to um, to guard, but pile up with numbers and maybe you'll get lucky off a set piece. It's, um, it's one of those things, just look at everything that's going on, look at why it's breaking down, watch those highlights, and hopefully the, the answer will present itself. Is it also worth uh, looking at? I mean, there, those, there are a million things there anyway, but I'm just wondering if it's worth looking at, you know, the sort of run at defence option. Yep. If you've got a good dribbling winger, for example, and if they are two blocks of four and you can't break him down, if you've got a good winger, maybe they can run through, break the lines. Just another thing maybe to try a bit different. Absolutely. This podcast does tend to skew to an older listener, so I feel I can say John Barnes in 1986. <laughs> and, and at least some people will go, oh, yeah. Uh, out and out left winger came on a sub uh, came on a sub when England were two nil down to Diego Maradona's Argentina and just turned the game around and there's an alternative reality somewhere where Gary Lineker meets his cross and makes <laughs> it two all um, but sadly it's it's not this one um, so all the best with that Josh and if you're listening and you're screaming because I haven't mentioned something obvious don't scream into the ether write me an email it's imacintosh at theathletic.com or find me on Twitter and we'll try and get your answer out on here next week and that was the Football Manager Show sponsored by LiveScore your guests today were Ryan O'Connell from Sports Interactive and Andy Jones from The Athletic your producer was Steve Hankey and somewhere underneath all this grey hair and cheap foundation I am still Ian McIntosh The Athletic